Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Dietetics After Dark, your source for food-related crime, scandal, and fraud. Becca, something fishy is going on here. Sarah, I think I catch your drift. Oh, that was good. (laughs) Our attempt of a planned intro. (laughs) I think it went really well. (laughs) Lots of fish sea-related news this week. Absolutely. And I'm sure many of our listeners have already watched the documentary that Sarah's referring to. Mm -hmm. Seaspiracy. Yeah, I think if you like true crime and food, you've probably watched that documentary. Yeah, I agree. What do you think about it? You watched it last night, right? So it's fresh in your head. Yeah, so I, I watched it last night, and I think you feel the same way. I agree with the overarching themes. Mm-hmm. I do think that everything that was mentioned in there, they are issues. Of course, yes. The issues of sustainable fishing, of crime on the sea. Plastic pollution. Yep, plastic pollution. All of the overarching themes are valid. I do think that in some ways he kind of just showcased the information that fit his narrative. Mm -hmm. 
And perhaps he was a little bit more one-sided than he could have been. For sure. I think he was going for shock value and it delivered. It was definitely shocking and really sad at some points. Hard to watch. Absolutely. I think it was a little misleading and possibly even exaggerated at times. Like it was, of course, meant to be dramatic. But like you said, it covered so many important issues and... While I think, you know, some of the data referenced was outdated, some of it was Mm -hmm. taken out of context, but I'm not sure it needs to be super scientifically rigorous as a documentary that's just seeking to raise awareness. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think my biggest issue with the documentary wasn't necessarily the information, like the specific stats and stuff that were like sprinkled throughout it. Mm -hmm. I think that it was just at the very end, his one solution for consumers to take action was to just cut out fish. Yeah. When he's describing these like massive systemic issues and Mm -hmm. his one solution is to individually stop consuming fish. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a systemic problem and he offers an individual solution and an individual solution that would only be available to people with a certain amount of privilege. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Did you ever hear about the Dunning-Kruger effect? It's, no. It's like this learning curve. It's a graph and it's a graph of your confidence versus how much you know. And so when you know a little bit about something... I wonder if this will translate well to a podcast describing a graph. <laughs> but when, so you, when you know a little bit about something, like when you just start learning about ocean sustainability, you feel really confident and you, like your confidence is really high and you're like, I can fix this. Like this is a, this is a big problem and like I'm learning about it and you're so full of like excitement and confidence really. And then the more you learn, your confidence goes down and it, it's called the valley of despair. Um, But it's like this deep dip in the middle that like the more you learn and the more you learn and the more you learn, you start to feel like, oh, gosh, this is really complex. And I feel that way in a lot of our policy courses when we learn about food security, sustainability, um, racism, things like that. And Mm -hmm. then you pass like they say a graduate level learning is at the middle of the valley of despair. And then as you move, (laughs) I feel like we're there right now. Absolutely. And especially like watching Seaspiracy, it's just like constant valley of despair, but I felt the director was ultra confident about what he knew or what he felt like he was discovering, even though there's thousands and thousands of experts that have dedicated their lives to ocean sustainability. And these these issues aren't secrets. Like they were covered by many headlines that he actually showed in the documentary. Yeah. Uh, and there are tons of organizations working to help change the situation. But the documentary made it seem very hopeless. Absolutely. And I 100% agree. First off on your little chart there, (laughs) as you started to describe it, I was like, wow, this kind of feels like how I felt when we started out our nutrition undergrads. Absolutely. Um, Like going in with so much confidence. And then the more you learn, you're like, oh, shoot, this is a wicked problem. There's Mm -hmm. so many factors involved and it's not as black and white as it might seem. And then what was my other point? What was the last thing you mentioned there? That he made it seem like, oh, nobody knows about this stuff. Or like, why is no one talking about this? But people are. People are. And I found too, like even some of the people that he interviewed that he was criticizing, like the, I think it was the Dolphin. Dolphin Safe Certification. Dolphin Safe Certification. That individual was so transparent. Mm -hmm. He was like, we can't guarantee it because things happen in the high seas that we can't 
we can't guarantee. Yep. But we're using our best practices and our best policy, essentially, to move this forward mm-hmm. as best we can. And I feel like he was a little bit unfair in saying that they just weren't trying. I completely agree. I mean, nothing is guaranteed. It could never be 100% dolphin safe. Nothing in life is guaranteed. There's food fraud that happens at all levels. Like, you just have to use your best judgment and just be okay with the fact that things happened beyond your control and advocate for them if it bothers you that much. Yeah, I completely agree. And I just, the thing that bothered me the most, I think, was the almost like taking down like the MSC, the Marine Stewardship Council Mm -hmm. label, I think it stands for, and the Dolphin Safe label. And I was like, no, these are the people you want on your team. Absolutely. And the MSC label, it's essentially put in place. There's like different sustainability standards that brands need to meet in order to have that label put on their products. Mm -hmm. And it means that they're traceable and they meet these, these standards. And this MSC label was created out of essentially desperation. It was created within the fish crisis. Mm -hmm. So they essentially put together these standards to kind of help and quite literally standardize it. So it kind of is our best like hope essentially right now of getting more sustainable fish. And I think what, that what we could do if it's not perfect and um, we want to improve things, is just advocate for more transparency. And the MSC is held accountable. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're going to mention this later, but I was doing some research about where, you know, if they've ever been criticized by the scientific community, and they have. There are peer-reviewed journal articles about it. There's a World Wildlife Fund. They, like, had a report that was criticizing some of their practices, and I assume, because that's how things typically work, is, like, these things were criticized, and then the company evolved in -hmm. response, I hope. Yeah, it's... A fishy situation. It's it's tricky and it's not easily explained. And yeah, I guess maybe I could just give a quick little intro of what we're going to cover today. Yeah, (laughs) that would be nice. We just dove right in. (laughs) People are like, "What podcast is this?" (laughs) It's our new Seaspiracy podcast. (laughs) Seaspiracy rants, (laughs) because I think we could go on for a full episode for sure. Yeah. Okay. So today we are going to talk about the fishing industry. And Sarah, you're going to give us like a bit of an overview of that. Mm-hmm. I understand. And then I'm going to discuss some major issue, issues. Issue, I was going to say issueries instead of issues Isheries. around fisheries. <laughs> um, we're going to discuss some major issues around fisheries <laughs> and sustainability and talk about one fraudster who took advantage of the system that was intended to protect the sea. Ooh. And... I just want to give my dad a little shout out because he gave me the idea for this episode. So Aww. shout out, dad. <laughs> Such a good idea. Okay, cool. Should I dive right in with the intro? Let's do it. <gasps> Let's do it. Dive right in. That was an accidental fish pun <laughs> or ocean pun. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a registered dietitian in your area. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes. This podcast may contain coarse language and mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. So I'm going to cover fishing and the fishing industry, which is not a small 
topic. And I went down so many wormholes while doing this research. Like, I think because of Seaspiracy, everything to do with ocean and ocean sustainability and fisheries was very Googleable. Yep. So I, I did a lot of reading for this one. And there are so many different stakeholders. Like, we know it's not a perfect industry, but there is no simple solution here. So I'm going to give a quick overview of the economic value of the fishing industry. We'll talk about what it's like to work as a fisherman, and we'll go over some different types of fishing and the main methods. Sounds kind of boring, but I actually found it pretty interesting. (laughs) Okay, so the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations is the only institution that collects national data from all countries on fisheries and aquaculture. So basically, they're the keepers of the international data on fisheries. So according to the 2020 report by the Food and Agriculture Organization, global fisheries and aquaculture produce 179 million tons of product annually. So that's a lot. 87% of that, 156 million tons, is directly for human consumption. So that's a hugely significant source of high-quality protein for humans. And about 54% of that is from capture fishing, and 46% is from aquaculture. Do you know what those are? I could take an educated guess. I don't want to sound stupid. Do it. (laughs) It's not like your voice is being recorded. (laughs) For the world to hear. Yeah. Wait, it's not the difference between, like, wild and farming, is it? Kind of. Like, farms? Okay. Yeah. Well, that was my guess. It's essentially (laughs) that. So, capture fishing is, I think, what most people think about when they think of, like, classic fishing. So, it's the catching of fish from natural, open bodies of water. So, like, the sea, lakes, ponds, rivers. And this means that the fish can be at any level of maturity when they're caught. Because you're using a really big net and kind of scooping everything up typically, you tend to get a lot of bycatch. So that could be other species or it could be immature fish, baby fish, um, Mm. and then, of course, adult fish. Culture fishing is essentially farming in water. So growing and capturing fish from tanks or cages, they are cared for until they're mature. So the harvest has a maximum yield. So it's all adult fish. And it's easily comparable to traditional farming because it actually uses selective breeding for optimal traits. And the bycatch is typically not a problem because the environments are contained. Mm -hmm. This is growing in popularity um, and is expected to surpass capture fishing by 2050. It's kind of crazy. That is crazy. This could be a really good thing for sustainability, but currently there are also downsides to aquaculture. So Mm -hmm. very similar to the critiques of industrial agriculture, it takes a lot of small fish to feed the larger farmed fish. The large fish populations create a lot of concentrated waste, uh, which can be A, unhealthy, and B, destructive to the environment. And then there can also be habitat destruction. But it's promising. So if fishery scientists keep innovating in this area, it could actually be the key to a more sustainable ocean system. Despite all the criticisms that we just discussed of the fishing industry, fisheries are essential to providing jobs and feeding the growing population. And I really felt like this was something that was kind of left out of Seaspiracy, the human aspect. So in 2016, the value of fishery production was estimated at 401 billion USD. 
So it's a hugely profitable industry. And per capita fish consumption worldwide increased from 10 kilograms a year in the 1960s to more than 20 kilograms a year in 2016. I have that stat in my part too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like we're fact checking each other. Confirmed. Which is a huge increase, but that's a worldwide average. So in some coastal developing countries, it can be as high as 91 kilograms per capita per year. That stats from Iceland, which is super high. That is high. A, lot, a lot of fish. Totally. And while like it makes sense, I'm, I'm not going to keep just like hating on Seaspiracy because I do think it brought up a lot of really important points, but it's so much more complicated than like a 22-year-old Brit saying, everybody go vegan. This is the solution. Mm-hmm. If, 91%, if you're having 91 kilograms of fish a year, it's a little bit harder to cut it out. And seafood accounts for almost 17% of the world's protein intake. And in some countries, it can account for over 70% of their protein intake. So beyond being an important dietary component, fisheries also maintain livelihoods, especially in coastal communities in developing countries. So it's estimated that fisheries support the livelihood of 10 to 12% of the world's population with approximately 60 million people directly involved in either capture or culture fishing, and another 200 million along the supply chain, so from like the harvesting um, and butchering process to distribution. And if you consider family members and dependents, then you're looking at the lives of up to 820 million people depending on the fishing sector. And then just a fun fact, there are 4.6 million fishing vessels in the world, and over 75% of them are in Asia. That's a lot of boats. There is- I was on mute. Oh. oh that's a wild number. <laughs> I was like, wow, she doesn't like my boat fun fact. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just turned the brightness down on my computer screen, and I didn't want to be click- making like clicking oh. noises as you were going. That makes sense. Okay, so as we talked about a little bit earlier, there's also a significant human cost to the fishing industry. So there's a New York Times expose on sea slavery. And then, like I said, Seaspiracy talked about it a little bit. But the International Labor Organization and the FAO estimate that about 24,000 deaths occur in the fishing industry each year which makes fishing one of the most hazardous jobs in the world, second to logging. Wow. I know. That's never too. Have, yeah. The risk of death is 16 times higher than it is for policemen or firefighters. And so if, if we use that estimate, 24,000 fishermen die each year, that means that every hour, three fishermen die doing their job. Oh my gosh. And if you read the... Uh, New York Times expose or watch Seaspiracy, you'll see that that number is likely higher because deaths do go unreported and bodies will can just be tossed to sea. And then beyond that, there are many other health concerns for fishermen. So they're working in a constantly moving environment. It's high stress. Often there's poor dietary habits and fatigue. And studies have shown that risk factors for chronic disease, such as high blood pressure and triglycerides, are more common in fishermen than among the general population. And then there's also concerns like alcohol and drug abuse and mental health problems, including higher suicide rates. So mm. it's a really tough job. And if like if you watch Seaspiracy, it, it just looks like brutal backbreaking work. Yeah. 
It does look really tough. So there are significant social issues with the fishing industry in addition to the numerous environmental challenges, and yet it is a vital industry for many people around the world. Okay, so let's talk about the different types of fishing, because not all types of fishing are created equal. So the most common form of capture fishing is called persane fishing, and that's when a boat goes out and finds a school of fish and then drops a big net around the school of fish and draws it together like a drawstring bag. I feel like I've seen this one a lot in shows. And because this type of fishing targets a school of fish, the bycatch is actually lower, which is pretty good. But sometimes they'll use what's called a fish aggregating device to attract fish to an area, and that will attract many types of fish, which would, of course, increase the bycatch. So bycatch, I don't know if I made it clear, but bycatch is definitely a bad thing. Yeah, you're just catching kind of whatever gets in the way. Whatever gets in the way. And that could be like just a bunch of different species of fish, or it could be sea turtles and dolphins Mm -hmm. and sharks and the sea creatures that pull at our heartstrings. Little Nemos. The Nemos, yeah. So trawling is another type, and that's when a net is dragged through the water behind a boat. And you can have either a midwater or bottom trawl, which just depends on the length of the net. And bycatch is not typically high, but habitat destruction can occur with the bottom trawlers as the net like goes along the ocean floor. Right. And then there are also gill nets, which are bad, and they are illegal in a lot of places, but they're still used in some areas. So this is basically a big wall of net that has tiny holes in it that fish swim into and then get stuck. And they are illegal in a lot of areas throughout the United States and Canada, but they're often used in developing areas of the world because they don't require a big boat with an engine. This is so boring. (laughs) No, it's actually not. I feel like I'm like right on the boat with you, kind of. (laughs) I I do find this really interesting. This is a huge part of our food industry, and I feel like it is really interesting to learn about. It's good to know about. Totally. And for me, like when I was reading this, I I was more interested than I thought I would be because I was like, I have no idea how the fishing industry works. Mm -hmm. Like I have no idea how they just scoop up thousands of fish into a sack and like bring it on their boat. Um, So net fishing is the most common, but you can also use lines. So there's long lines, which basically looks like a really long charm necklace in the water and has many hooks and that you put bait on and then the fish obviously come up and take the bait. They're close to the surface, so they kind of hang out towards the surface of the water and that's where turtles, sharks, and seabirds hang out. So Mm. there is the risk of bycatch. Uh, You can also dredge. This is the last type I'm going to tell you about, <laughs> but this is bottom trawling. So it's dragging the net along the ocean floor, but there's also a metal rake attached to the net, and that's for getting scallops, clams, and mussels. And again, bycatch is low, but habitat destruction is a concern. Yeah. So pretty much, I just wanted to show that like there are so many different types and ways of fishing and different considerations with each kind. And some can be considered more sustainable than others. Okay, on a more positive note, progress towards more sustainable fishing has been made. So the proportion of fish stocks that are being fished at sustainable levels is increasing. So in the States, it went from 53% to 74%. 
over the 11-year period from 2005 to 2016. And in Australia, that number increased from 27% to 69%. So that means more fisheries are fishing at sustainable levels. And I'm actually going to get into why that is in my part. Ooh, okay, okay, okay. (laughs) That makes me excited. So one of the biggest things to work towards is better technology, more sustainable technology in the fishing industry. So I'm going to tell you about a new newish technology called aquaponics that I think is so cool. So aquaponics is a combination of aquaculture, which we just talked about. That's the kind of like fish farming mm-hmm. aspect of the fishing industry and hydroponics, which is growing plants right in water. So you have fish and plants growing in the same aqueous environment And it's a symbiotic relationship. So the fish are in the water and their waste acts as fertilizer for the plants that are also growing in the water. And it's like the perfect combination of fishing and gardening. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it is nice. So wholesome. (laughs) I know. There is a Canadian company called Water Farmers uh, that uses aquaponics to build sustainable agricultural systems. And in Toronto, we actually have four aquaponics locations. No way. Yeah. Can we go visit one? Yeah. Things open back up. I've been to one. There was one in Sault Ste. Marie. I would say I don't think it was aquaponics, but it was aquaculture. And again, well, it smelled like fish. I can go alone then. <laughs> no, I'll go with you. <laughs> and if they want to hire a dietitian <laughs> soon. Hit us up. And then I'm gonna finish off with a fun fact, but there are also duck ponics where ducks Aww. live with the with the plants. So how does that work? Do ducks need land? This might be a silly question. I think they prefer a combination. But I'm just wondering, like, in this aquaponic structure, is it Mm -hmm. just water and, like, plants? Or is there also some land or, like, I don't know, floaties? (laughs) Big pineapple floaties that the ducks can hang on? Well, they're not not confined to the water. Like, they would just have access to the water and then be in the big room. Okay. Because usually it's like a facility, like a greenhouse, essentially, but with these... Yeah, it's like a full big greenhouse with massive, um, like, they just look like gardening beds, but then they're filled with water and the plants sit right in them. So, like, from the surface, you actually don't see much water. It just looks like a regular greenhouse. But then they're all in a bed of water and then they'll have little ponds that the ducks can go in and poop, basically. (laughs) And then that water is, like, sprayed up over the plants. Oh. It's like a little system, like a fountain pond duck that's plant cute. system. Yeah. That's it for my part. Did that set the stage for your big story? I feel like it was perfect because I don't actually talk about the different methods and ways to fish, but I do get into fishing. So it's great to have that background knowledge. Okay, Sarah, are you ready for some more fishiness? Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm going to sit back and relax and tell <laughs> me a story. And that I will do. But as always, before we get into it, some of the sources that I used include an article by Aditya Singh Verma in The Diplomatist, one by Brian Barth in The Modern Farmer, another by Antonia Farzan from The Washington Post, and an episode of the docuseries Rotten called Cod is Dead. I didn't know there was a rotten episode. Yeah, they cover a lot about sustainability and and, um, fishing, but they don't actually really get into the Codfather story that that much, but it's it's a good episode. And as always, you can find all of the other sources that we used in our show notes. Okay. So we can't talk about the crimes 
that took place at sea without first talking about the structures and policies that currently exist around fishing globally and in the United States. Now, this story is specific to the U.S., but it does affect the system and the demand of seafood at a global level. If you aren't convinced that this sounds interesting, (laughs) I swear that there's a lot of scandal in this story. I was pretty surprised. And as Sarah was saying, there's actually a ton of scandal, crime, and fraud within the fishing industry in general. Mm -hmm. And this is somewhat because of the separate laws that govern large bodies of water. So before the 20th century, these laws were a bit wishy-washy, and large lakes and oceans were sometimes referred to as being lawless. And this was based on the concept from the 17th century called freedom of the seas. And according to this, cities and towns on the coastline had ownership and rights over just three nautical miles beyond their coast. So anything that was beyond this was deemed international waters. So Mm. it just didn't really belong to anyone. And as you can imagine, that would be really, really tricky to govern. This is so cool already. (laughs) Isn't it? I yeah. like, got really deep into it. And a lot of this this information was really like convoluted and dense. So I tried to like kind of just make it more of a story, but I found it so fascinating. It's just like the seas are so mysterious and scary and stormy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought I honestly I thought fish would be boring, but I'm so here for this. <laughs> Carry on. Great. <laughs> I'm glad you're not finding my story no. boring so far. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Okay. So between the 1950s and the 1980s, the United Nations developed an international agreement called the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, or as I'll likely refer to it a little bit more, uh, the Law of the Sea Treaty. This was created in response to governments wanting to be able to source certain minerals beyond their borders, um, to be able to protect fish and enforce regulations around pollution. So the most recent version of this agreement was established and signed in 1982 in Montego Bay in Jamaica, but it only became effective in 1994, so Hmm. still fairly recent. So the treaty highlights the responsibilities and the rights that each country has when it comes to the use of ocean resources. So things like business and environmental guidelines, as well as some dispute resolution. So maritime countries control the water from the shore until about 12 miles out of the shore. So instead Mm -hmm. of that three miles, it's now 12 miles. And this is only if you've signed this treaty. So each country will have their own laws and regulations governing this area. And then they can have up to another 200 miles of what's called an exclusive economic zone, where the country can't control the boats going through this area, but they have exclusive rights to the sea life and minerals in this zone. Interesting. Okay. So no one else Mm -hmm. can fish there. Exactly. I should specify, like, if you haven't signed this treaty, you can kind of make up your own rules, but this treaty just kind of outlines things and provides some benefits to the the people who are in agreement with it. So this uh, economic zone... Some countries have up to 200 miles, but then others have much, much less, as the zone can't overlap with that of another country's. So anything beyond these zones are considered international waters or the high seas. So if a crime occurs in this area, so the high seas, the country owning the vessel has jurisdiction over it. However, this gets a little bit confusing in instances where someone from one country commits a crime on a vessel of another country, 
and is then on the waters of a completely new country when the crime is discovered. Oh, my and gosh. This, this <laughs> happens, like, way more than it probably should. Also, the country owning the vessel has jurisdiction over it. The vessel that commits the crime or the vessel that's a victim? I think it's the vessel that commits the crime. It seems impossible to police just based off learning about this right now. Absolutely. And I think they're trying their best. And essentially, this this agreement does help try to safeguard this area, like the high seas. And it does try to kind of implement like a, like a legal regime hmm. when it can. But you're right. It is really, really tricky to, to monitor. Um, did you know a nautical mile is different than a mile? No. Fun fact. Oh, no. It's just a little Everything bit bigger. Everything I'm talking about is nautical miles. <laughs> it's just a little bit bigger. It's like pretty much the same. But I think it used to be a minute of like boating, but I don't know at what. Oh, Anyways, wow. a nautical mile is just like slightly bigger than here. A nautical mile is based on the circumference of the earth and it's equal to one minute of latitude. Okay. What the heck does that okay, mean? Okay. That can, a minute at what That's speed? relative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's slightly more than a, a land measured mile though. Okay. Are you fact checking my stuff as I go through or did you know no, that I, from before? No, I looked it up when I, cause I was <laughs> reading so about cool. nautical miles in my wormhole. That's so cool. (laughs) I must have missed that article. But yeah, everything I was referring to are these mysterious nautical miles. So as of 2017, 160 countries have signed the UN agreement. So some other countries who have yet to sign it include Peru, Turkey, Venezuela, and pretty surprisingly, the United States of America. What? Yes. So there is some speculation around this, and it was really difficult to find like a consistent answer as to why they haven't hopped on board because the U.S. actually helped shape this agreement. Oh, so like back in like the fishy. Yeah. I I know. They're like, no, you you guys should all sign this. Really? (laughs) (laughs) We'll just sign it later. (laughs) Yeah. Get some drunk at a party, and then it's like, oh, I gotta gotta go. Yeah. So one historical theory is that the U.S. thought that the treaty violated their sovereignty or or jurisdiction, giving power to the communist countries. And then another theory is that if they signed on, the U.S. would have to surrender sovereignty to the International Seabed Authority, which may affect deep seabed mining and open themselves up to international lawsuits. But this is all speculation, Overall, I think it's more just a matter of them not wanting their economy, their seas to be governed by anyone but themselves. But by not signing this treaty, the U.S. does somewhat forfeit some national security, uh, some trade opportunities, and some resource extraction. They do, however, accept this act in accordance with the agreement. They just won't sign it. So they, they accept it as, like, not necessarily law, but they accept it but they just won't hop on. That is so bizarre. Yeah, it's a bit strange. Huh. And I should mention that Canada actually only signed on in 2003, so it is pretty recent for us. Hmm. So we have these international sea laws that the U.S. chooses not to be a part of. Then each country has legislation and policies around their bodies of water. So more regulation has been put in place recently due to issues around sustainability, specifically around overfishing. Now, fish and seafood are a large part of our food supply, as Sarah was saying. And it's estimated that 61% of the global fish stocks are now fully fished, which means they're at their cap. Mm. 29% of the global stocks are overfished. Yeah. So they're just essentially being damaged now. 
that just jogged a repressed memory of like when I was doing my research, I think I read that only 7% or 5% of stocks are underfished, like the tiniest little portion. Yeah. So it's literally the difference between when you add these two numbers up, what do we have? Oh, yeah. 70. It's like eight. Huh, so, huh. <laughs> 90. It's so it's 10%. It's 10%. It's 90. Yep. <laughs> it's 90. Yeah. So job. 10% are underfished. <laughs> Good team effort. So to make matters of sustainability worse, the FAO estimates that 35% of all catches are wasted. And I don't remember if you mentioned a stat on this. Yikes. No, I didn't. Okay. So this is mainly because some of the fish are either too small, they're mm. unwanted species, or simply because of improper equipment on the vessel, so on the boats. And sometimes they just won't have like proper refrigeration if they like overcatch or or catch that byproduct. Bycatch. Bycatch, that's the word. Yeah, it sounds like bycatch. Now this brings us to our story for the day. We're in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is actually America's number one fishing port. The fishing industry here apparently brings in over a billion dollars every year. And this is from sushi-grade fish all the way to dog food. The U.S. is the second largest consumer of seafood in the world right after China. So a lot of fish will stay local, but some of it will be shipped for consumption around the globe. In the late 1960s, large foreign fishing fleets began removing large quantities of fish from the ocean. The New England coast, which is where New Bedford is located, it was a big target to these fleets as it's so densely populated with fish. This process disrupted the whole ecosystem that existed and many fish species died off. In response to this, U.S. Congress passed the Magnuson Act in 1976, which essentially said the same thing as the law of the sea. <laughs> so only U.S. <laughs> citizens can fish within 200 miles of the local shoreline. So while this did protect American fishermen, it did kind of forget about the resource that we're all talking about, which is the fish who are being overfished. Right. And going extinct. Exactly. So fast forward a few years, and there you have it. We have ourselves a global fish crisis. Who could have predicted? There's many of us that apparently couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> So this time, Congress decides to set limits on the number of fish that fishers can catch. And this really does start to impact the quality of life of all fishers as this directly limits their ability to make money. And then this like feud kind of develops between fishers and scientists who are supplying the research that justified why things needed to change. So the National Marine Fisheries Service, which is a part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or the NOAA, which is what I will refer to it from now on, they were tasked with measuring the number of fish left in the area, which, as you can imagine, would be really difficult. <laughs> so these results of all of these studies impacted the number of fish that the new Bedford fishers could catch. And these fishers thought that the NOAA was underestimating the amount, but it turns out that they really weren't and that the situation was even more dire than was initially thought. Ugh. So in 2010, the NOAA then implemented what are called catch shares, which are basically quotas that are divided up amongst the fishers. What some fishers were once able to catch in like one day became their quota for the year for certain species oh of fish. Gosh. So it really kind of limited uh, their ability 
to fish, just depending on like the size of their company, like the the organization that was going out to sea. Right. And therefore their ability to make a living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a really tough, it's really tough because both parties are trying to do the right thing. You have mm-hmm. the fishers trying to make a living and the NOAA trying to save the environment. So it's, yeah, it's a tricky situation. It's competing interests. It's, it, there's no easy solution. No, there's not. But yeah, so these these catch shares, they essentially became the private property of the fisher who owned them, and they could sell or lease them as they pleased. So individuals over their quota could then buy or lease more shares. Okay, cool. It is interesting, but it does kind of privatize the ocean. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, um, but I'm just like seeing how crime will probably come up. <laughs> yeah. And it does. <laughs> Many individuals were critical of this approach since, as we were saying, it basically privatized the fish, which are meant to be a public resource to all Americans. And what happens when a country can't meet the demand for a certain food product locally? You have to start importing it. And this opened the door for an influx of foreign seafood because the demand remained the same. And these imports don't necessarily have to follow the same sustainability protocols. Right. And that's actually not even what we're getting that deep into today. That's just an aside. Maybe another episode. (laughs) Maybe another episode. So in addition, the limits and catch shares forced many smaller fish businesses to shut down, which meant that there were more opportunities for larger operations to take over. One of these operations belonged to a man by the name of Carlos Rafael, a.k.a. the Codfather. I love that. (laughs) So since there were no limits on how many catch shares you could hold, these larger entities could essentially accumulate them and control a big part of the system. Raphael quickly accumulated about 25% of the groundfish quota for all of New England. Wow. Yes. And before we get, like, too deep into what happened, I want to just give you a little bit of a backstory on Carlos Raphael. So Carlos was born in 1952 in the Azores, which are these fairy tale like islands in Portugal. At the age of 12, he was sent to live in a monastery since his parents were afraid that he'd be drafted to the wars in Angola and Mozambique. But after a short period of time, he was kicked out of the monastery and he convinced his parents to move to the U.S. Wow, persuasive. He sounds like he's quite the persuasive guy. Totally. (laughs) Uh, His family moved to New Bedford when he was 15 years old, but pretty immediately he dropped out of school there, claiming that the lessons were too basic. He then started uh, working in the fishing industry, which is actually mainly run by Portuguese Americans, which I didn't know. But I was in Portugal like a couple years ago and they really do know their seafood there. So I wasn't that surprised. After a few years in the early 1980s, Rafael started up his own seafood distribution company called Carlos Seafood. He slowly built up the business by buying more and more fishing boats until he controlled a huge percentage of the New England fish market. His business dealings weren't always the most ethical, though. In 1984, he received six months in prison for tax evasion. And then a few years later, he was charged, but then quitted for price fixing, which is essentially inflating the price of fish exported out of the area. Mm. And in 2001, he was found guilty for forging sales receipts. 
and he received a two-year probation sentence and six months of house house arrest. (laughs) House arrest for this crime. Many say that he earned his nickname and reputation because of his more cutthroat personality and criminal activities. And I found one quote of him from a conversation with federal fishing authorities where he said... I'm a pirate. It's your job to catch me. And then he followed this with a bunch of (laughs) F-bombs. Okay. Regardless, he remained one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the area, and his processing facility and distribution channels were allegedly worth millions of dollars. So you could imagine that someone with this kind of capital and a history of criminal activity would be thrilled by the new catch-share policy, which essentially allowed him to buy up the fish shares legally, all while controlling the market. He would also purchase the smaller operations that were going out of business, but this too was 100% mm. legal. And I mean, it was, it's a pretty smart business strategy if you have the means to do it. Wow. I mean, he's an entrepreneur. It's undeniable. Absolutely. But like he has he, some shady tactics. <laughs> yes. The system that was put in place to protect the ocean ended up giving the largest players the most power. And in this case, it gave a known criminal more resources and opportunity. In 2015, Raphael decided that he wanted to sell his business and move to Cape Verde, which is just off the African coast. But by this point, authorities were beginning to catch on to him. So a few months later, in June 2015, two Russian mobsters contacted him about the sale, except these weren't really Russian mobsters. They were undercover federal agents. Ooh, I love an (laughs) undercover agent. Especially a Russian one. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So these two fake mobsters and their fake broker met with Raphael in his warehouse. After a few meetings, Raphael began spilling all of his trade secrets. He claimed that his company was worth over $175 million, which was eight times the amount that he had claimed to the IRS. Oh. Mm -hmm. He said that his business structure was perfect for laundering money, and he showed the mobsters that he could make about $600,000 every six months in just off the books cash. Okay, perfect. (laughs) Keep these things to yourself. (laughs) I mean, he was trying to sell the business, so I feel like this is his sales strategy, right? It's his his pitch, yeah. And he thinks that these people are also criminals. Yeah, all right. I I wanna say that they're probably just really convincing mobsters. So Raphael also admitted to mislabeling fish for their dockside inspections. So what he would do is he would label the fish, like certain types of fish, like sole and flounder, as haddock, which mm-hmm. had a higher quota. So that way he could get away with catching more expensive fish that were in short supply. Because he also owned the distributor, he would then properly label the fish and sell it to a New York broker for literal bags of cash. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So he's just like, he owns so many parts of this distribution system that he can just like perform fraud at every single level of it, basically. Exactly. Because he owns the next step. He can get away with fraud in that initial step. Sounds a little like the horse meat situation. Yeah, it does. Kind of. Kind of. All the frauds blend together. (laughs) There is a lot of it. And yeah, you're right. Fraud. Fraud is fraud is fraud. Okay. So the cash that he got for this fish was then laundered into Portugal through Boston's Logan Airport uh, using Raphael's extensive network. And one of the pawns in this scheme was a man by the name of Antonio Freitas, who was a sheriff's deputy and a former immigration and customs enforcement 
task force officer. So Freitas helped him bring money into Portugal, but apparently he claims he didn't really realize that he was doing anything wrong. Mm. I don't believe him. Skeptical. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical as well. But in February 2016, they had enough evidence to arrest 65-year-old Rafael at this time, who in March of 2017 pled guilty to over 20 offenses. And these include money laundering, tax evasion, falsifying fish quotas, and conspiracy or seaspiracy. <laughs> or conspiracy. Conspiracy. That one's harder to visualize on a podcast. <laughs> For sure, but it is definitely the better pun. I agree. (laughs) Okay. So he was then sentenced to 46 months in prison and has to pay $3 million in penalties. His bookkeeper was also arrested at the time, but her charges were later dropped. And then they also arrested and charged Antonio Freitas, who was the guy uh, who helped launder the money. And he was sentenced to 366 days in prison. Just one day over a year? Yeah. I can't explain why that would be. So he's now actually suing Raphael for $600,000 in damages since, as I said earlier, he claims that he didn't know that what he was doing was illegal. While this might seem like a win, Raphael had about 300 employees at the time. So as all of this went down, many people were left without work and it severely impacted the New Bedford economy. Part of Raphael's settlement forces him to give up industrial fishing and to sell his boats and permits. These were apparently sold to larger operations, but also some more independent fishers. And Raphael's daughter, who helped manage his assets while he was in prison, was quoted saying, My family is happy to close this chapter in a manner that allows people to get back to work on the water. I am hopeful that my parents will be able to enjoy a well-earned retirement spending time with their children and grandchildren. But it doesn't sound like he's fully retired as of yet. So Raphael's release date was supposed to be in September of this year, but in April of 2020, he was transferred to community confinement, which typically means the prisoner is sent to a re-entry center, such as a halfway house, or they're put under house arrest. But the Federal Bureau wouldn't really give many more details at that time. And Raphael was photographed at a country club in December. (laughs) Yes. Okay. And then I found out later in my research that he had actually purchased that country club. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so he's out and he's living the life. He's out, he's living the life. Um, He also purchased an apartment complex in a different part of Massachusetts. So he's still doing business. It's just a different kind of business. All right. He sounds like he's a hustler. He is a hardworking businessman. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully he's just learned from his prison experience and is doing things by the book. I think he has. And in a lot of, I mean, I know that these are court statements and he's probably on his best behavior. (laughs) Um, But he did say that he was like looking forward to just relaxing with family and and whatnot from Hmm. now on out. Okay. So as for the hardworking fishers in New Bedford, they started working with the NOAA to try to improve the way that fish are counted so that more accurate catch limits can be put in place. Clearly, these quotas were put in place to help, and apparently some depleted species of Pacific ground fish have actually recovered already, which is great news. Oh, that's cool. So some of these like catch-share limits are working. Most individuals do agree that limits should be imposed on how much quota one person can own uh, to prevent an occurrence like this from happening again in the future. But I couldn't really find any recent information on this, so I'm unsure if any adjustments to quotas have been made recently. 
Huh. That seems like a good solution. Absolutely. I think it would be an easy one to impose unless, I guess, it could potentially mean that they would have to take some shares away from people, which might be an issue. Right, 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 right. But maybe moving forward, they could distribute them more equally. Wow. Yeah. But that's the story of the Codfather. Oh, my gosh. I've never heard of the Codfather. It's such a good name. I know. Like, such a good criminal name. That was really good, though. I've never heard that story. It's crazy. It is crazy. I really liked learning about it, though. And lastly, before we wrap things up, I just wanted to mention a couple of things that we as consumers can do just to keep things sustainable or help improve the systems that are in place. Because I feel like we talked about Seaspiracy quite a bit, and Mm -hmm. our biggest criticism is that there weren't really, well, my biggest criticism was that there wasn't really many actionable items. So here are a couple suggestions. Hmm. So you could learn about sustainable fish sources and... This might mean learning about the species that are more prevalent and those that are more at risk, or learning about the different labeling systems and what those mean. So like what Sarah and I were talking about. In terms of fish species, there are apps and resources that can help you select types of fish that are more sustainable and less at risk. So one platform, and my dad actually recommended this one to me, uh, it's Mm -hmm. called Seafood Watch. On this website, you type in the type of fish that you're either about to order or consume or buy, and it will tell you if it's the best choice or if it's one that you should avoid. And if it's one that you should avoid, it will give you some alternatives if that's the case. Oh, that's a great resource. Yeah. And I, I tried it out like a couple of times. I mean, I haven't used it diligently as of yet, but I'm definitely going to moving forward. What did you try it with? Um, I actually did sockeye salmon because I was, just curious to know if the salmon I eat yeah. is sustainable. And what it was it, it said that it was um, one of the the good options, the oh, best cool. choices. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I actually I typed in what was it in in the documentary? It was bluefin tuna. Bluefin tuna. Yeah. And it said that that one is one you should avoid. Oh, good to know. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. So I can add the link to to this resource in our show notes just in case you want to check it out. And then, as we already discussed in terms of labeling, there was a tremendous amount of criticism about certain labels in the documentary, such as the MSC uh, label. And I just wanted to also mention, because I didn't mention at the beginning, the organization does hire third-party sources like biologists who do the audits on the fisheries. So it's not actually MSC themselves. They hire out um, to get these these audits done. And it might not be a perfect system, But as some unsustainable activities might slip through the cracks, but it is one of few organizations that have set standards like this. Mm -hmm. And this brings me to my second point. So if you don't agree with the level of monitoring or labeling that currently exists, you should just advocate for more transparent labeling. Consumer demand dictates supply. And if we demand for more transparency, fish brands and organizations will have no other choice but to listen to us. We can also advocate for a more measurable definition of sustainable fishing so that the standards that have to be met are a little bit more rigid. And then third, we can discover local sources of sustainable fish and seafood as local sources will be more sustainable just in terms of how much distance they have to travel to your plate. And lastly, you could limit the single-use plastic just since a lot of this does end up into the, the oceans. That was such a great list. I'm going to do all of those things. I'm so excited to play around with Seafood Watch. That's such a cool resource. Good job. And I feel 
like, I love that you gave actionable tips that people can look into to help improve their seafood consumption. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. And I I think that it's, it's important. I feel like people get stressed out about these types of issues when we don't know of things that we can do. I mean, our like frustration and anger towards these issues just dissolves. And it's like, we could funnel that into something useful. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, do you have a teaser question for next episode? So no, because I was trying to think of a question and I I honestly couldn't think of anything to ask you because we're going to be covering nutrition research and the Ansel Keys starvation study. Ooh, that's going to be really interesting. Which is such a cool one. Okay, so that's it for today. That was a lot of fish. That was a lot of fish. A lot of fish. And we'll see you next episode. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietetics After Dark. You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at dieteticsafterdark.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at dieteticsafterdark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dieteticsafterdark at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.